I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited about today's guest. Her name is Anne LeCam. Anne is an executive fellow at Harvard Business School. That's where we met. She co-taught one of my classes there. She has had an incredible career in Hollywood. And about 30 years of that was at Disney Animation, where she was a senior vice president. And she was there during a really amazing time when Disney Animation acquired Pixar. And this is one of the greatest stories about creating change, shifting a culture, and making way for innovation. And I know this might sound like kind of a businessy episode, but we get into a lot of stuff that has broad application, including listening as a superpower, understanding and falling in love with the problem, uh, purpose, iteration, the importance of having uncomfortable conversations, and also a really cool thing we spend some time on is what's called a brain trust. And this is something that's really interesting that they did at Pixar and then at Disney Animation on how to create a system of feedback and candor where people do their best work and are completely empowered. So it's a great conversation. I'm glad you're here. Enjoy it. Hi, Anne. Hi, Tim. How are you? <laughs> Great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. This is my second week recording an episode kind of on the go. We're at your home in West Hollywood. It, you know, it's it's somehow really great to be in a home and around a table. Right? Yes. It just feels less formal than a recording studio and sort of more like friends conversing. And so we met at Harvard Business School where I was a student and I'm a recent alum, and you are what they call an executive fellow. Can you tell us a little bit more about your interaction with Harvard Business School, the course that I was taking with which you were involved is leading and building a culture of innovation, but just tell us kind of what is that relationship for you? I have been an executive for many, many years, and 30 of those years I spent as an executive at the Disney company. And that's how I got in contact with Professor Hill, who was interested in writing about us or a case study or learning from the experience that we were going through. And so that's how I met Linda. When I wasn't working anymore at the Disney company, she asked whether I would become an executive fellow, which is basically somebody with experience in, in business Mm -hmm. complementing the academic experience of Linda and bringing life, life stories about what it actually means when you're in the business doing the work. And so in my work as an executive fellow, we do research. We do research on leadership and on innovation, and especially in the digital era and what it all means to do a digital transformation mm -hmm. and how we can help leaders in other companies do that. So we do a lot of research and I teach, uh, co-teach with Linda and with Sunan a couple of classes at Harvard. Yeah. And this is a really important thing, what you just talked about is a moving into a, a digital era and, and the transformation that that requires. It, I think it's probably fair to say it's not just an adjustment for a no. company, right? 
No, it's definitely a, a huge transformation, a cultural transformation, a technological transformation, a strategic transformation. And there's a lot that is changing in the workplace about what people are expecting of a workplace, what they expect of leaders, and especially in the communication area. Mm. And I think that leaders need to adjust to that in order to... Uh, be able to attract and lead the next generation of people that are coming into the workforce. So you you had three decades with Disney Animation. We'll come back to that because there's a lot to talk about there. Disney, Pixar, etc. And your Weta's digital. And Weta Effects. I was the SVP of uh, global talent and, and and animation production. And Weta is a visual effects company based in New Zealand. And they worked, it's Peter Jackson's company, they worked on Lord of the Rings and the Avatar movies, which, uh, and then on a lot of other movies for other companies and other studios. Yeah, it was amazing. I, I, I didn't know the name of the company. Uh, and when I started looking into it a little bit, of course, I mean, like you say, and even a lot of very current shows like The Last of Us, Glass yes. Onion, Game of Thrones. <laughs> and so it's quite a prolific company. You know, what's interesting to me about, well, one of the things about your life that's interesting to me is you've spent a lot of time gaining experience of not just wrangling creatives, <laughs> which as a creative myself, I know how that can probably feel like hurting cats a lot, but designing environments in which they can do their best work. And that's not an easy task. Mm -hmm. So prior to your, your current company, you were at Disney a very, very lingering path, but uh, <laughs> I love lingering paths. <laughs> I'll I'll start with where it all started. So I'm originally from Belgium. Mm -hmm. I'm from Antwerp, uh, and I uh, studied there, uh, and I worked for a bank in Belgium in uh, more of the human resources aspect of the business, and they were sending me to Harvard Business School in order to complement my studies as a professional. And so that's where I met my husband, Stefan, who mm. was living in Paris. And so I was then interested in moving to Paris, but I couldn't really work for a French company because I wasn't a French native speaking mm -hmm. person. And so uh, Disney at the time started their journey there with the parks. And so I was able to be the 40th employee of uh, the Disneyland Park and Amazing. be there for the whole conception of the park and the opening of the park. And so that was the beginning of my journey. And it was a very interesting, very fast-paced environment because we were doing such a big thing, but yeah. in such a short amount of time that the learning experience was expon exponential. Mm. When I did that for a while, I was asked whether I would come and work in the animation studio, which was in Paris. And so that's how I entered my journey into the more creative side of business. And I really, really enjoyed working with creative people and enjoyed seeing the magic of what they do and trying to make it easier for them to do what they do. And so that's, that's how I started the Disney animation. After a while, I moved to different parts of the Disney company, but then I got a phone call saying, would you and your family move to Los Angeles? Mm. And that was at a moment where Disney animation here was going through a huge transformation because 
um, we were doing 2D animated movies and 3D was becoming a trendy thing. <laughs> so right. that's how I started my journey in Los Angeles. And then um, that's how I was uh, lucky enough to then be part of the the Pixar acquisition and having its leadership and mentorship and learning how to best create an environment for people to do their work. Mm. And so that's amazing. Being, being a catalyst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You segue us perfectly into this era of time that I really want to talk a lot about. And so in 2006, Disney acquired Pixar, Ed Catmull, who you just mentioned, um, was at Pixar and then if I get any of this wrong, please jump in and correct me, but um, was then hired to be the president of the, the blended company. Yes, but I wouldn't call it a blended company because there were a lot of um, there was a lot of separation between Pixar and Disney mm -hmm. animation. But Ed was the leader of both. Yeah. And, and so. And Pixar had a, a, a track record for innovation, right? Of some of the things that they were, they were really going from strength to strength, one might say. Yeah. And um, at that time, Disney animation was in a period of time that at least what Ed calls in his book, um, Creativity Inc., which I, I was attracted to this book from the first time I saw it because on the cover is a picture of a silhouette of Buzz Lightyear on a conductor's podium holding a baton. <laughs> um, and so it, of course, caught my interest immediately, and it's a, it's a great book. He, he talks about how Disney animation was in what he refers to as a, as a fallow period that hadn't had a number one movie in 15 or 16 years, and that from his standpoint, it seemed like really needed rejuvenation. The studio needed to renew itself. You know, it's a cyclical business where you can become very successful doing something, but then you continue doing the same thing over and over again, and then it stops being so successful. So renewal and reinvention is really important. And then in those moments, deciding what you hold on to and what you let go mm. and reinventing who you can be and what what actually is, is worth holding on to. That was a big part of the, the rejuvenation. Ed had the track record of creating Pixar and having all the successes there in creating an environment that really did that well. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to come and help at Disney Animation to make that journey again with us. Yeah. Which is different when your company starts that way or when your company has a 90 old year history. Right. And you have to mm. um, respect the legacy, make sure it doesn't hold you back, but jump into the future. Right. But something you just alluded to that that can also lead to inertia. Yep. Right. The way things that have been done. And so you, you are all of a sudden in this environment where you, you worked for Disney. Then there was acquisition. Ed became the leader. And, you know, we know that not everybody was a fit in the new environment, right? There was this challenge of blending these cultures and of kind of creating, as you were saying, rejuvenation and even transformation uh, of that, which that seems incredibly, <laughs> incredibly complex. And how did you fit into that? Not all executives at Disney made it through this sort of transition. Did you know Ed before, you know, was there kind of a meeting of the minds when this transition happened and, and the acquisition and he became the head? How did all of that work where you felt, okay, this is still a place for me and I want to be part of this transformation. When the 
the acquisition happened, it was a little scary for all of us because we didn't quite know what the intent of the acquisition was or where this was all going to lead. But I remember that Ed, when he came, the first thing he did was he sat down with each and every one of the senior executives and had like an hour meeting with us Mm. just to hear how we were thinking about things, how we were seeing the studio, how we where we thought the studio could go. And he listened to all of us. At the end, not everybody made it indeed, but Ed said something about the fact that some people couldn't even see the problem and that Mm. um, if you can't see the problem, you can't be part of the solution. And so that was, I think, in his mind, a big piece of his um, mantra of understanding who he could actually work with. Mm -hmm. And so there were executives like me that, that actually got on the journey with him and wanted to make a better environment for the artist and make successful movies and uh, create create a culture in a studio that was really impressive to to have but that i think was just from him hearing about all from all of us what we thought and where our mindset was with regards to that organization so it's fascinating to me that he started with that right of coming in and really wanting to listen intently to the people who were there to truly understand where they were, their idea or vision for the company and, you know, where they saw its future going to see if that aligned. That's a great leadership move. It was. Right. (laughs) And, And yeah, I think its leadership was very much inspired by listening and, um, that's what he constantly did. And he did that so very, very well. I learned a tremendous amount from his ability to listen without judgment and to listen by completely being there. Mm. And so that's exactly what happened. Is it fair to say that one of your focuses in this new company is people strategy? Yes, that's very, (laughs) that's yeah, that's exactly what I do. Mm -hmm. And um, making, you you know, it's all about connecting with the people and making sure that the people that do the work actually have an environment in which they can do that well. And so it's about listening. It's a lot about listening mm-hmm. to what is going on, where they are, how you can bring them to somewhere else. But you can't move, I think, a group of people to a different place if you don't know where they are. Mm. And so um, that's where you can, you, know, you, need, you need to listen all the time. So that sort of discovery process is essential to moving a vision forward. Absolutely. Which, of course, is really hard with a lot of creatives because you have a lot of opinions and ideas flowing in and out all the time, right? And so how do you do that in a way that encourages, well, first of all, captures these ideas, right? To let people know that you really want the real idea embraces the creative abrasion that's necessary to the process and creative abrasion is something that uh, the class that you (laughs) teach at Harvard or one of the classes you teach that comes up a lot. But so it's about capturing those ideas, embracing that creative abrasion, and then somehow helping them coalesce into a unified vision and where, where great things can happen. Yeah. How do you catalyze that? I'm really curious, especially this is not a small company. No, no, no. It's a it's a big group of people and uh, it it requires it requires time. Mm. (laughs) It requires an investment because, first of all, you need to build trust. 
so that people are willing to give you the ideas. And they have to understand that you care. Because if you don't care for the people, they will not care about you. I think that's the first act you have to do. It's to give trust and to give care. And then people start trusting and caring in, in exchange of that. Then there's a lot of voices coming up when you have created that environment where you can listen. It's really about listening without judgment and hearing ideas and synthesizing those ideas to bigger concepts. And then I think that you make sense of the noise mm -hmm. and it becomes to crystallize into some ideas or prospects you can put out there. And then I think it's really about continuing to listen because some people, they listen and then they put in place an idea and they walk away from it. It's mm -hmm. staying with it and continuing to refine it and continuing to shape it with the people that are there with you Yeah. by continuing to listen to what is what this idea actually generated, how it is received by the organization, what the side effects, the unintentional consequences might be, mm -hmm. you know, and staying with it and uh, continuing to, to listen and, and refine the ideas. Yeah. It's a really important part of the whole process. What would you say that at that time, what was the biggest challenge that the company was facing? You know, you mentioned inertia. I think that was a big problem. I think we had been successful for a long time mm -hmm. and people had stayed on that idea of success and they didn't want to see the reality that we weren't perhaps as successful as we once were. Mm. And so there was not a desire to change. There was a desire to go back to what it was before, but there was no way back. <laughs> There's never a way back. You can only move forward. Right, right. And with the whole idea that sometimes what got you there is not what's going to take you forward, right? Yeah. So if you're dealing with this huge amount of complacency, that that seems tough to me, right? This sort of, because that's, I mean, talk about groupthink. I mean, complacency is, you know, a breeding ground, <laughs> right? I mean, these things just feed each other. So how, as, as, a, as a leader, how do you create that shift? We talk about culture a lot. And I remember during one of your uh, lectures at HBS, you know, you talking about how, you know, in, in creating change that you, you can't just boil the water, mm -hmm. right? That you have to change one drop at a time. Because I think we have this idea, like big company, that all of these things have to go at scale, right? in order to create radical transformation when in reality that might not be how you start at all is it no yeah i think you know we started by making small steps and i, I talked to you about being consistent in what mm -hmm. what it is we do the signals we send what we how we are perceiving those signals and the ones that we send out into the organization and creating consistency there is really important, I think, in leadership and in creating an environment. And so it was by starting to take small steps, seeing what these steps actually did in the organization, and then picking up on the, the signals we got back from the organization to keep driving it further. And it's a little bit like a flywheel where in the beginning mm. you're pushing very, very hard and it doesn't seem to make a lot of impact. Right. But then at one point, all of a sudden, it starts going on its own and everybody starts pushing the same flywheel when there's enough trust and enough confidence that we're going in the right direction. In order to start, I think um, the 
PixRx's acquisition, as I said, was a punctuated moment where we realized that something needed to change for us. And so captivating that moment and, and amplifying it in the organization. You know, I'll, I'll go back to listening, but I also think that you can't move people until you've listened to them. Right. But once you have listened, and even if you're not going in the direction that you, they think you should be going in, when they feel listened and they feel that they have been heard, mm-hmm. then I think they w- they're willing to move with you. That's a super interesting idea to me that you don't necessarily have to have 100% agreement, right? That you can be compelling as a leader and in presenting a vision and helping, helping someone understand the necessity of that. You work a lot in the space of innovation, but before innovation becomes survival, perhaps, yeah. that's fair to say, right? <laughs> um, and I remember um, during our time together at HBS, we were working on having kind of a challenge statement. If I'm remembering this properly, that the one that you really developed when you were in this job was the audience is changing, shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. And yep. so I would, I would love to hear you talk more about that, right? because that seems like a critical point of a the realization and 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 being willing to be with that right to admit it's really hard when you're in a sustaining industry i know this from being in you know i mean opera is a 400 year old art form right and that it can be really difficult to be in something where you grasp the craft and the beauty and the lineage and the history of what you do and its importance but that doesn't necessarily mean you're always bringing the audience along in the same way. So how did that work for you in, in, in this environment? People will always want entertainment, but mm. we have to realize that that will change because there's new generations, there's new forms, there's new attention spans, there's different way people can be entertained. And I think if our job is to provide that experience to people, Listening to the customer is equally important. Mm. Listening to what the audience actually reacts to, what they gravitate towards. I don't think it's ever threatening us to not have a job because people will always want entertainment. It's Mm. just us being able to adapt to what that entertainment looks like or how we could even anticipate what that might look like in the future and be there and be where we can meet these audiences and these people. And in a way that is interesting and appealing to them. And so everything is always a living organism that is evolving, Mm -hmm. that's changing, not ever stagnant or stuck in time, evolving with it, going with it, listening where it is and how we can best respond to it, I think is a really important piece of providing entertainment that will wow the world. (laughs) And how does that tie into purpose? When I think about the, the purpose, it is our purpose to entertain and wow the world. That's very broad. You right, can sure. do a lot of things right, with a that. A lot of things fit under that umbrella, right? <laughs> fit under that umbrella. If you define yourself too narrowly in your purpose, hmm. like if our purpose is to make 2D animated features for future audiences, that might narrow us down into what we can actually do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that keeping your purpose broad so that it can evolve with the world that is within it is really important. Hey, everybody, it's Tim. 
My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you, and we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at Moti Myers, that's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S, and always happy to hear from you via email, that's Timothy at TimothyMyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. I want to go back a little bit to capturing ideas, really understanding the ideas, and then understanding, do they match up with this vision or this purpose that we've just talked about? And you had some ways that you tried to do that, uh, that were successful, and some others that you weren't. In fact, I think it was called Spark, Mm -hmm. that um, was a platform that you developed to try and encourage broad sharing of ideas. Uh, Can you tell us what that was, how it functioned just on a literal level and what was or wasn't successful about that? So in the beginning of our transformational journey, um, we created this program Spark, which was an opportunity for people to bring forward innovative ideas that could be creative ideas, it could be visual ideas, it could be administrative ideas, any idea that was new and useful, as mm, Linda right. <laughs> New and useful to the organization. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's what innovation yeah. is, yeah. new and useful to the Thank organization. You, Professor Linda Hill. And yeah. so everybody was able to bring an idea forward, and then they would get a couple of days to create a proof of concept, and then they had to present that proof of concept in front of the rest of the studio so that we could gauge which ideas actually got the most traction, which were successful. Good ideas bubbled to the surface anyway. But um, as I said in, in, in my class, unfortunately, in the beginning, we got very few ideas because people didn't trust it and they mm. thought it was just another program and it didn't really work. So it was really important we continue to stick with it, though, and we continue to work on it. And uh, what was interesting for me, I think, was that over time we would get more ideas and we would get more interesting concepts. But... In listening to the ideas, you actually understand the problem. Mm. And I think that that's really important when you're listening. Because people will give you ideas that they think will solve a problem. And they all come with different ideas. And they, right. But they ultimately try to solve all the same problem. And once you understand the problem, and I often relate to fall in love with the problem Mm. because once you understand the problem the solution comes fairly naturally Mm. but it's really hard to understand what you're solving for and if you try to take all the ideas without really reflecting on what the problem is you're trying to solve you might solve it in the wrong way right and so when you listen to ideas being brought it comes to your point about how do you then bring convergence yeah yeah it's like you hear all these ideas and then you understand that there's a common thread in all of them. And once you articulate that thread, then you have a problem and then you can communicate back to the organization saying, we think this is our problem where everybody then will say, yeah, actually that is. And this is the solution we put behind. Okay, let's try that and experiment. And you know, that's how I think you then use those programs to 
uh, understand what kind of solutions the organization needs to put back in. And something I know you're also passionate about, and that is continuing to ask why. Why is this not working? Why is this challenge? And really, right, the idea of what this ties to what you were just saying of, are you asking the right question? I, I think in a lot of ways, and not just in business, but in life, we're up against something that we perceive as a challenge or a problem or something to solve for, right? Which is, which is already difficult. But in reality, sometimes we're not even looking, we're not even asking the right question. We're not even evaluating the, the right data. Absolutely. <laughs> and so to get to that point is really already, well, as you say, perhaps kind of the biggest challenge is how do you, how do you mine down to what really is going on? Exactly. And I do think, you know, the, the, that understanding what the problem is, is yeah. the most complicated part of, of, uh, so of tra trying to solve it. But it takes time to understand what the problem is. And sometimes we go too fast and we fix symptoms, but we don't really get to the core of what is actually not working. And so cultural change, I think, is a lot of that too. It's you start something, then you discover something else, you go deeper and deeper, and it's like unpeeling an onion until you get to the core thing that sits at the heart of everything. And once you get there, everything changes. Yeah. But it takes a moment because it's not completely obvious from the first move, which what, what, what really is at the core of where we are. I remember when I was the first time when I was at Harvard, we would have these business cases and they were like very long. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and the, the most complicated part was articulating the problem. Right. And you got seven words. And right. <laughs> that was not a lot of words to articulate a problem, but it was the, if we could, if you could that part right in the case, you probably know what you're doing. So it was a big learning for me to always stay with the problem longer than I think I should. Mm. And to keep questioning it until I know that there's something there that needs attention and that I'm paying attention to the right things. Hmm. Right. And having a really concise understanding of the problem so that you know where to go. Culture is a, is a word, and I'm talking right now specifically in workplace culture, right? Not necessarily societal culture, but that's a word that is just bandied about in a lot of different ways. But it's also one of the most difficult things to shift, isn't it, in, in an organization? Absolutely, absolutely, because it's intangible. And it's mm. not something that you can point to, or it's something that is the soul of the company. It's how people behave, how they, how they interact, how they know the norms of how to engage with each other. And so it's very elusive. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can immediately know it when you walk into the door what it is. And so it's, um, it's hard to shift because it requires, as I said, a lot of consistency and a lot of clarity into what you stand for and why you stand for what you stand for. And then having make, making sure that the whole environment and all the things you do are in sync with that purpose. We refer to false notes when we were doing that work. So people, when, when there was policy that perhaps wasn't completely illustrating what we thought that it should, people would call it out and say, that's a false note. And mm. then we would shift it so that, you know, it was more in line with the culture that we wanted to inspire in the organization. Yeah, it reminds me of the, 
you know, this, uh, it's, a, it's attributed to Peter Drucker, wh I, whether or not he actually said it, but this idea of culture eats strategy for breakfast, yeah. right? And I was giving a talk to a team at a company in Miami a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this, about shifting culture. And, you know, they had this brand new, big strategic plan that was very glossy, uh, you know, and beautiful and had good data and everything behind it. But, you know, my point in talking to them was, I, and I even had a graphic that I brought from a colleague that was sort of a fish up, you know, on the top or near the top of the water that said strategy. And then beneath it was jaws coming up, you know, it's a, and that was culture. Right. But this idea that no, no matter how good the strategy, that until you figure out how to start getting the culture part, right, you're, you are limited at best, if not completely incapacitated. Right. Absolutely. And I see that a lot now with the research we're doing also about digital transformation. A lot of people focus on the technology mm. and on the infrastructure, and they forget the cultural part of bringing people along in their organization <laughs> to actually put these things into good use, whether that's data or tools or anything. But if you don't focus on the culture that you have to create and be inclusive about people that haven't necessarily grown up with these tools and then also apply that to those that have and bring that whole environment together in a very consistent way. That's where transformation happens. Yeah. And so really understanding that, well, I, I come back to the idea and I really, really don't, I don't like this term, but the idea of soft skills, mm -hmm. right? I, when I started studying at HBS, I would get so mad when someone would refer to something as a soft skill, because I'm like, you can have all the hard skills you want, but you can't make a shift, right? So you can have all of the data you could, like you're talking about in digital transformation, you can have all of the tools at your disposal, budgets, everything. But unless you're really, unless you have those, I've started referring them to them as human skills, uh, unless you have those in place, and you're really focusing on that, there's no way to, like the idea you mentioned earlier, to get that flywheel moving. It's right? true. And I love the idea of human skills. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 one of my goals in life is to banish the idea of soft skills. You know? <laughs> I, I want to come back to something here. Uh, and this is when you are in this environment of building a culture, shifting a culture, that requires a lot of really good and open communication. And at Disney Animation, and I think maybe this was something that came from Pixar, if I understand it correctly, was the idea of a brain trust. And this is something actually in our class yep. at HBS we worked, we worked on in our groups that was really, really interesting. And I would love to talk about this idea of a, of a brain trust what it means, how it functions, et cetera, et cetera. Can you kind of launch us into what this idea is? Yeah, the, definitely. You know, the, the work that, that was done at Pixar or at Disney Animation on the movies requires iteration. And because it's a creative process and uh, good ideas always require iteration. It's never brilliant from the first go. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Pixar actually created the Brain Trust, which was a place where the filmmakers and the writers and the people that uh, were at the concept of the film would mm -hmm. come together and 
look at the look at the screening and then come together to give notes. And there were rules about the brain trust to make it a place where there was no hierarchy. There was only a film that needed help and everybody was there to give help to that film. And so the filmmaker also didn't have to take the notes. He just had to listen. Mm, and interesting. Uh, if he didn't agree with it, he didn't have to include it in his movie or take the take the idea but it allowed the fact that he wasn't he or she wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily in a position where he had to take the note made it easier to listen mm. because it didn't feel like a mandate or something and so it was not personal it was all about making the movie the best version of what it could be it was all about being honest and open and caring for mm -hmm. the people that were giving the notes and to be open and receiving for the filmmaker who could actually benefit from it. You mentioned that there are rules of engagement in the, in a brain trust, but how do you create that environment where there's candor, you separate the idea from the person? This seems like a very delicate ecosystem to create, especially when I think now kind of looking at our world is that any sort of disagreement is viewed as polarizing. I'm interested to know more just like in action, what happens in the room in a brain trust and how do you build that environment where everyone is willing to set those things aside in real life where the best ideas come out, candid feedback to somebody who might be your superior. <laughs> <laughs> often. This seems like a really challenging thing. It's a very, very complicated endeavor. And that's where I think, you know, the brain test itself is a brilliant idea. The execution is very, very complicated mm. and it needs constant work because it evolves and it shifts. And depending on who's in the room and who, what the, the, the interaction is. And so you definitely need to watch for the signals that some people aren't speaking or that some mm. people are sending body language that perhaps isn't aligned with what they're actually saying or, sure. you know, what's <laughs> not being said. <laughs> so it needs to be moderated in, in a, in a quiet way, not with a formal moderator, but just by observers in the room that would watch for the dynamics and make sure that we can correct them if things mm. are going a little bit, a little bit sideways. But, uh, it's also, making people understand as they come in that it's part of their responsibility to be honest and to be forward thinking. And because often people are afraid to say something that will make them look in, like idiots or yeah. make them feel yeah. bad. And so people refrain themselves. But if you say that, there is, if you come with a good heart, you can say a lot of things if you come from a good place. And it's very important that everybody has the same intent coming into that room and mm. so once the intent is clear we're here to make the film the best version of itself it's about the film not the filmmaker then oh, i think right. you can really get into more honest conversations about what actually could could help what could be beneficial for this yeah to be better and what would you say are the ground rules and maybe ground rules isn't the right term are there things that do or do not happen in this environment? You know, there's no hierarchy in the room. Everybody comes in and leaves their ego and their phone at the door. Everybody's just present to do what they need to do mm. in that meeting and to fulfill their responsibilities towards each other. 
I think that some of these rules were established in the beginning by, by Ed or in, in the way that they operated. And so once that was clear, it was very obvious for everybody that this is how we operate here. And presence and listening and being able to really be there for a moment in order to help each other was really essential in that process. I obviously love this idea. It comes to me in a thought of, does this work in non-work relationships and environments, <laughs> right? I mean, when I look at the idea of a brain trust, what you're talking about, egos and devices checked at the door, right? Everyone is there with a common purpose, which is to do something as well as possible with a singular vision in mind, right? And so you're all in pursuit of the same thing. How can we take these ideas and apply them to a very polarized society or even within a family environment? Is that something you've spent a lot of time thinking about or working on? Yeah, I think, you know, you have to, in order to have a brain trust, you need an idea to start with. You need a project, a concept to mm -hmm. respond to. You know, I think it's not easy to do that as a freewheeling exercise of <laughs> brain trust over breakfast with the kids. No. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I do think there's a lot of the concepts and the ground rules that apply to a lot of things in our lives and could apply to our families, could apply to us as leaders in an organization mm. about listening and about being able to welcome ideas from somebody else that doesn't need to be a brain trust as formally as this is. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that there's a lot of value in that being present and being there to really understand and, and, and take the ideas of somebody else and see what you can do with these ideas and whether they can enhance yours. Mm -hmm. And that listening without judgment that happens in that room, I think is really something that I try to apply in my life. And that I've learned from Ed, for sure, mm. is just listening. What's interesting to me about what you were involved in doing at Disney Animation, especially during this time, is creating that environment, right? Shifting a culture to be more singular in vision. Is that fair to say was a desired outcome there? Yep. Yeah, yeah. We wanted everybody rowing in the same direction. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it comes to a point where you have to understand what is common um, amongst everybody and take that idea and bring them forward with it. That idea of, of uh, listening and synthesizing to something very simple that people can actually rally around is what brings an organization forward. Mm. So the company for which you most recently worked... Mm -hmm. was based in New Zealand. You're based in Los Angeles. In this environment of remote work, and obviously that's a big remote work, right? That's a substantial time change. Do you have suggestions on what you've learned over your career in people strategy, you know, creating a unified vision, keeping people on that track with that vision of ideas of how you can accomplish that in a remote or largely remote environment? You know, when I started my engagement with Weta, I spent a significant amount of time listening. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so I did um, 
uh, one-on-one meetings with more than 150 people in the organization. Just asking them who they were, where they came from, why they liked being there, what they liked about it, and what they were concerned about, what keeps them up at night. And so that created a relationship with a lot of people in the organization that I think was very informative for me to distill once again what is going on here and how can I help Mm. and then to put forward ideas and I think communicating and repeating those ideas repeating where we're going what we're trying to accomplish why we're trying to accomplish what we accomplish and bringing that together in a remote environment it takes a lot a lot of communication and but it's it's very important to stay connected what is hard I think in a remote environment is knowing how fast you can go because you uh, don't feel the organization as much as when you're in it with sure, it. Sure. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, you don't know whether you're moving too fast with your change and you're losing people mm-hmm. or whether you're not going fast enough and they're getting impatient with you. Sure. So it's very difficult to pace yourself, but mm. you have to listen to the organization in order to be able to take the next step on your journey. And, um, that I think is easier when you're in person yeah. and you can feel the organization and know, okay, I can push one level further because I know everybody's in the boat. Otherwise, you have to be, I, I probably went slower in a remote environment than I would have had if I was there in person. But I then also spent occasional time going there to see, to feel the organization, to see where we were and then to make sure that everybody was in the boat as we made our move. I love this idea that you just mentioned of pacing. How do you pace an organization? As a conductor, this is something I think about a lot, right? Of pacing a performance. It's almost a sixth sense, mm-hmm. isn't it? What you're saying is it's harder to do remotely because it's harder to use that little <laughs> sense, right? That might be at the back of your head or at the base of your spine of, is this, you know, is this working? But in doing it in a, in a company of actually moving the whole ship is really interesting to me. You have to allow time for the change to happen. Mm. And when you move, there will be unintended consequences. There will be things you haven't necessarily foreseen or a hypothesis that you had about something that would happen that isn't happening or something that isn't resonating and you need to autocorrect all the time. Making a move and then resting for a moment and listening is important because otherwise it feels like you're constantly changing, but people are losing the focus of that change. And then sometimes somebody said to me, you know, it's almost when you move too fast, it feels like some you're in the library trying to study and somebody's dropping books behind you all the time. <laughs> and it's like, oh, there's another set of books now. I need to start reading those. So it's important for for leaders to pace the change so that people can get on board with it, can stay on board with it, and then take the next step together. Um, and that, I think, is, is the pacing that you're talking about, yeah. sometimes resting and just letting it sit for a moment. And then people get accustomed to it and you can make another move. For me, there's this tendency to just push, right, and advance and go, 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 and you know, seize an opportunity and be nimble and take it. But this is a good lesson for me to be thinking about of being really more in tune to when it's okay for something to just be for a little while. I think so. You know, I had to learn. It's something I had to learn. It's a skill. Um, I was known to be a restless leader. 
Mm, okay. You know, so I would constantly look at things that could be improved and constantly improving and trying to make them better. And it's exhausting for people. <laughs> yeah, this is why you and I get along so well. I think we have that in common. <laughs> so, so I had to learn that I sometimes just need to let it go for a moment and then come back to it later. But as you're walking, it also ensures that you're walking in the right direction, not just walking. Right. <laughs> so it gives you a moment to yourself to recompose, to reassess and to pick up on the noise again and make sure that you're receiving the right signals in return. It's a feedback system. Are there any significant leadership lessons you would like to share? One of the leadership lessons that I learned was that we have to lean in and lean out and mm. we lean in to listen and then we lean out to enable. It's very important for us as leaders to make ourselves available to listen, I think, and to meet people and to be where they are and to figure, figure out where they are then to put things in place to make it easier for them and then to lean out and enable them to do what they need to do. Mm. And that's where people will surprise you. That's where they will go further than what you could hope that they could do because they feel empowered and they feel, they feel heard and they feel respected and they can do their work better. When you work to develop a direction or a vision and start something moving, of then having the ability to just step back and, you know, it's trust. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll never forget something that Professor Margolis said. Trust isn't free. It introduces risk into the system. Absolutely. Right. And you have to be okay with that. And I think that's something that really also carries over very much into personal relationships. It's, it's a mutual thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a one street. And the problem with trust, I think, is that you have to give it first before you can receive it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so if you don't trust the other person, the other person will never trust you. Right. And so you have to be vulnerable for a moment because I have decided I will trust you. And now I have to wait until you trust me in return. And especially as leaders in an organization, I think that's important that we send signals that we trust the people that work with us. And we often don't because we have policies about everything and anything, which is not a signal of trust. It's a signal that <laughs> right. I, I'm not really trusting that you know how to spend your money or make a, you know, it's, um, it, it can be very risky to trust people and to let them go and enable them to do the best work that they can. And I, I think especially now where we work remotely, we work yeah. hybrid, we need to trust people and we can't control them on their time or on what they're doing on a daily basis, but we have to trust that they will do the work and that they will deliver and that there's outcome that we can expect from them and that's where we can work together. In, in creating the, the transformation that you did in your career, did you find resistance to you on the basis of gender? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. You know, I, I never thought of myself as, um, as a female executive. Mm, I amazing. thought of myself as an executive. And yeah. I had something to bring to the table. And I had to make a room for myself, space for myself, for the ideas that I could bring to the table. And I never felt that that was resisted because I was a woman or 
that I was stereotyped in some way. And I think the resistance, the, the reason why I paused perhaps was that the resistance might have come more from society than from within the organization. Mm. I was very clear on why I was there and what I had to accomplish and the fact that this was the best choice for me and my life and my family. There was definitely some pressure about whether that was the right choice for me and my life and my family from oh, outside. I understand. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but in, inside the organization never felt like hindered or to bring what I had to bring to the table. Mm. I was lucky enough in that way. Yeah, that's amazing. A big takeaway for me um, from one of our classes at HBS where you talked about that an organization's inertia is much greater than that of the individuals who compose it. And one of my biggest takeaways from our conversation and from the time that I've spent learning from you is, right, is again that idea of starting with a drop. I know for me as a leader, that's hard to think about sometimes because everything seems to be oriented around speed and scale, right? And how real leadership, and again, whether that's in a large multinational company or your own life, it comes from these small moments, right? And of being present in those small moments, being willing to be vulnerable in those small moments. Yes. It starts very, very small. It small starts um, with little steps, but it, it translates exponentially. Like you give something to somebody else and that person will give it to somebody else and it mm. will exponentially in the organization spread itself out. And that's how culture gets created. But it starts with small little smart sparks of consistency and, and connection. And mm. then... I think you can, it's like an, uh, an, how do you say that? It's like an oil thing and it just spreads. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and it covers the whole ground ultimately, but it, um, it starts very small. I don't think you can um, start, well, I, I haven't seen it happen where it, it, you go fast and massive. I don't right. think that's how you create culture. Uh, one other thing that I'll n never forget you. <laughs> saying that I wrote down in my class notebook, dare greatly and have a plan B. <laughs> yeah, because there's always risk. <laughs> and you asked me earlier what I had as leadership lessons from things that I learned or things that went awfully wrong. And many things went awfully wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so having a plan B is always a good, good option. But uh, I think that comes with Doing new things, doing innovative things, being creative, it comes with risk and it can yeah. sometimes not work out the way that you thought it would. Yeah. And uh, the nice thing when you experiment, I think, is that you can try something. And if it doesn't work, you go back to what you did before. So that's always a plan B. <laughs> yeah. No, it reminds me, I, before we started recording, I had mentioned that Seth Godin was on a recent episode. And in that conversation, he and I were talking about my children and you know my daughter who's in kindergarten you know exploring trying all these things and you know he said he said i think the probably the best thing you could do is get her a t-shirt that says this might not work <laughs> right exactly and how, and how that comes back to a lot of what we've talked about today of you know being willing to try these things and having the trust and vulnerability to take 
to take a risk, to try it, being willing for something to not go well. And like you say, you keep bringing us back to this idea of, you know, be in love with the problem and stay with the question, right? Stay with the problem, keep asking why and being in that discovery mode. No, and I, I do think, you know, it taught me early on, like, if if we're not failing, we're just not trying hard enough. So oh, wow. keep keep doing things and then you will fail. And that should be absolutely okay because then I'll know that you're trying hard enough. <laughs> if we're not failing, we're not trying hard enough. That's amazing. And he also taught me the importance of self-awareness and of having uncomfortable conversations regularly. If you haven't had in the last couple of weeks, an uncomfortable conversation, something that really was about you, something you said, something you did, or something the organization was doing that didn't sit well right. And if people weren't bringing that to your attention, he was saying, then you're probably doing something wrong. Mm. As a leader, being able to dig into the organization and go look for what it actually needs to be brought to your attention, because the higher up you go, the less people will talk to you. Right, right. Uh, or honestly, because there's there's fear or there's just like the discomfort of not wanting to take your time yes. <laughs> because you have people imagine that you have more important things to do than to listen to them which is not the case but you have to go look for it because even saying my door is open you can always come people want that right. your time is too precious for them and so they never think of their problem is big enough for, to be brought to your attention. So you have to go look for it. Mm. But he encouraged us as leaders to go look for it and to have conversations with several people in the organization to, to hear things that might not be pleasant to hear. Right. And then you knew that you were on the right track. When, when's your book coming out? I mean, <laughs> you, you've got a lot of valuable <laughs> things to, to pass on from, you know, your experience and, uh, you know, now you, you've, you're in this maybe slightly different phase of life, you know, where you're starting to pass that on and with your work at Harvard business school and the research that you're doing with Linda and her team, I, are we going to, are we going to hear from you in that format <laughs> at some point? And you know, I'm, I'm thrilled and honored to be on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so consider this the start of a okay. conversation. I, I enjoy, I'm enjoying sharing yeah. what I have heard, what I've experienced, how I've learned. And, um, I'm trying to do more of that at yeah. this point in time. And perhaps that could end up in a book, but I'm not sure yet. Yeah. <laughs> If yeah. it can make the world a better place, that would be good. Well, talking about the world, just kind of wrapping up, some, a question that I ask all guests is, what would the world look like with more listening? It would look magical. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> no, I think it would be a great, good place. There would, it would be less drama, more peaceful, and more mm -hmm. quiet. I'm really grateful for this conversation. So glad we know each other and that I've been able to learn from you and been a true Thanks pleasure so and i always enjoy talking to you and digging into ideas yeah. <laughs> this is only the beginning so we'll, we'll keep doing it we'll keep doing yeah. it for sure right. thank you Tim. thanks thank you for listening to listening on purpose hosted by me timothy myers i hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. 
You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose. Listening on Purpose.